everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Most Accurate Podcast. My name is Greg. I'm your host. The music on today's episode is a song called Mud by the Pimps of Joy Time from their 2017 album Third Wall Chronicles. To hear the full track plus all the other music from my shows here on the TMAP feed, check out the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. On today's program, we're diving back into best ball, covering running back, quarterback, and defense. And to help me with all that analysis, I've enlisted TJ Calkins from the Dynasty Command Center over at Rotoviz and USSportsBonus.com. Please give him a follow on Twitter at TJ Calkins. TJ, it was only January, but it seems like forever ago that we were hanging out in person at FSGA in Las Vegas. It's kind of an understatement to say that a lot has changed since then, but one thing that hasn't changed is our love for fantasy football. We're going to dive into that today. I'm excited to get you on the show to talk some best ball strategy. Welcome to TMAP. How are you doing? Hey, man, I'm great. Uh, happy to be here, and thanks for having me on. And man, you said it. Uh, Vegas, what a simpler time. <laughs> it's It was different, that's for sure. Yeah, so uh, let's dive right into getting our best ball listeners uh, some good nuggets to use here as they draft. Yeah, and before we get into the nitty-gritty, I want to give a quick refresher for any listeners who might not be super familiar with the best ball format. This is a draft-only format. It has bigger rosters so that you can get enough backups for each position, and every week of the season, your best possible score is going to be given to you based upon that team you drafted. Rosters and scoring settings are going to vary a little bit depending upon the best ball platform you're using. For example, Fanball's Best Ball 10s use PPR scoring, but they don't use kickers. Best Ball Leagues over at the FFPC, the Fantasy Football Players Championship, Those do use kickers, and there's also tight end premium scoring for receptions on top of the standard PPR for other positions. I should also note that passing yardage is worth slightly more at the FFPC than in Fanball's best ball scoring. And typically your goal is to finish in first or second out of the 12 teams that you're drafting with. So in terms of overall strategy, you need to strike a balance between steady every week scores and big boom weeks from higher variance players. And on that second note, you ultimately need to pick up some number of league winner type players who significantly outproduce their draft positions because you're looking for a high variance positive outcome. Now, because best ball is typically a draft only format, we can essentially draft all throughout the off season, which can lead to having a lot of different teams in our repertoire. And that brings me to my first general strategy question for ETJ, courtesy of four for four zone, Chris Allen. He wants to know what your approach is to volume drafting. How do you build your quote unquote portfolio of players across all the different best ball drafts that you do? I have to answer this one with a do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) I am extremely aggressive on the players I want to target. I've always been that way. I do have one of the best ROI seasons to show for it, but it does set you up for a potentially small loss on a losing season, if you have some injuries, if you have some whiffs. So I will say target the guys you want, uh, particularly in the late rounds. I think you can really make bank on that. But in the earlier portions of drafts, diversify at all positions. Unless you have someone that is clear-cut, obvious value, uh, say at the tight end position, let ADP do some dictating for you as far as uh, filling up and widening, expanding that portfolio. Yeah, I go back and forth on this because sometimes I think the best approach is to almost always follow your own evaluations. If I keep ending up with the same players in the same ranges of drafts, I want to believe that's because I'm seeing some inefficiency in the best ball market. But I also believe that you need to take what the market gives you when it presents bargains that are relative to ADP. 
if a player at a position you need falls two rounds past his ADP, you kind of have to consider drafting that player pretty strongly, even if you don't quote-unquote like that player. And this is especially true in those earlier rounds where if you don't like a particular player at his ADP, you're not going to end up with that player in the first place. So you won't be able to diversify your portfolio with that player unless they slide, right? And correspondingly, this is why I think you're almost obligated to take someone like Christian McCaffrey if you get the first, first overall pick, because you won't have many, if any, opportunities to pick him in other drafts if you don't get the 101. Does that all make sense to you? Perfect sense. Uh, couldn't have said it better. And if you're saying a player is getting two rounds past ADP at a position you need, I'd even take that a step farther. You can take them at a position you don't need. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I got another question from Chris as well, and I think this is a good one because one of the hardest things to figure out in best ball ahead of the NFL draft is where to target rookies. Chris is asking, how does your experience in Dynasty port over to best ball? Are there any key takeaways in terms of rookie hit rates that you can share with the listeners? Well, we don't have it quite yet, and we're still working off of uh, film and metric evaluation. But uh, the biggest correlation is going to be NFL draft capital. And we all have to be prepared to be uh, wrong in some instances. If, if a player we're not projecting to get day one, day two capital gets that, then all of a sudden they're in play in best ball format, uh, whether you were a fan going in or not. So how are you drafting rookies at this point then before that draft capital is known? I personally tend to avoid them altogether. Now, if a guy, again, falls really far past his ADP, I'll take a second thought and be like, okay, maybe this is the round where I do draft this rookie. I've done that a few times here and there over my draft so far, but what is it like for you? Are you willing to draft these guys around their cost, uh, slightly below their cost in best ball drafts before the NFL assigns them to teams? It's extremely positional sensitive for me. Rookie tight ends, I'm going to fade 100% of the time. Yeah. Don't want them. They don't hit. Uh, rookie wide receivers, it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis for me. But rookie running backs, I will absolutely take. Uh, they can seize a workload from day one. And generally speaking, before the draft, uh, so we still have another few weeks to this, you're going to have some real values once we see the landing spot and capital invested come the draft. Yeah, running backs tend to be a little bit more fungible or plug-and-play than other positions. So a rookie RB's odds of paying off in year one is generally higher than that of other positions. But as a result, running backs are drafted higher, right? A lot of people understand this and know this fact about them. Uh, so sometimes I think you could argue that rookie wide receivers will sometimes represent greater overall values relative to their draft cost, especially while some of them are going dirt cheap before the landing spots are known. Uh, like a recent example from one of my best ball drafts, I was looking at Larry Fitzgerald versus LaVisca Chenault at 1806, the sixth pick in the 18th round. I ended up taking Fitzgerald just because, I mean, say what you will about the direction his career is going. That just feels like too decent a value and too much of a known value relative to what that offense is going to look like in Arizona. But I was very tempted by the rookie there. What would you have done in that situation? Which of those guys do you think you would have thrown a dart at? I think Fitz is the play. Uh, we, we have a history here, or at least a recent history, of him having many, many usable best ball weeks in the first half of the season. And if you get that again, and even if he does completely implode the second half of the season, at cost, he was a positive for the team. So what I did there is I snuck in a question about wide receivers, even though this episode is going to be all about running backs, defense, and quarterbacks. Uh, before we get into the running back position, 
Is there anything you'd like to add, TJ, regarding general best ball strategy? Oh, if we stay on the rookies for a second, uh, we can look at some receivers that are maybe a little bit older. And if we're looking at them from a through a dynasty lens, they're maybe slightly less attractive than they will be for year one. And assuming they're getting the second round, obvious day two capital, a guy like Denzel Mims is a guy that could walk in and make significant contribution immediately. And he'll be an older rookie, but that's okay in a one-year format. Yeah, it reminds me of Debo Samuel from last season. There it is. Amen. All right, let's dig into running back. And we're going to start at the top of ADP. Last season for both best ball tens and FFPC leagues, Christian McCaffrey was the running back with the highest win rate. 37% or so in best ball tens, about 30% in FFPC. That's huge. It's crazy that he led to that many, or he was on that many winning rosters. And what's even crazier is that he did it from an average draft position of 1.02, the second pick overall. So it should come as no surprise to see McCaffrey as the consensus 101 this year. He was highly lauded last year. He delivered. So with that in mind, people are going right back to the well. But TJ, I know that you like to be contrarian. So if your life depended on it, how would you build a contrarian case against McCaffrey as the first overall pick in 2020? Well, I do very much like to be contrarian. This is not a spot where I can build a case. (laughs) And my response is hopefully what is dead may never die. (laughs) Going back to a Game of Thrones reference there. I, I guess you would say he somehow has a huge receiving workload decrease with the new coaching staff, uh, which is reaching as far as one can reach. So I am, uh, I, 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 I'm grasping at straws trying to make an argument against McCaffrey 101. It's just, there's nothing to get there. Yeah, I, I ultimately agree with you. I think if I had to build it, the easiest way to justify passing on McCaffrey would be if I already had an inordinate number of first overall picks in my best ball portfolio where I already drafted him. Like if I had, you know, 100% exposure to Christian McCaffrey, I might be willing to start throwing picks at, you know, Saquon Barkley or whoever else. But otherwise, I don't think it's really worth trying to make a case for a different running back than McCaffrey at 101, because even if you happen to like Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott, or whoever else more this season, like maybe that just happens to be your take on those top running backs, You can join other best ball drafts and pick those players when you end up with the 102, the 103, the 104. So as an overall result, as an ultimate result, I think the contrarian case against McCaffrey would be to pivot off of running back altogether and say, take Michael Thomas at 101. In my mind, this hypothetical only works if you feel like you have the market for running backs completely figured out, quote unquote. Essentially, you'd be telling yourself something like, I don't need McCaffrey because Thomas gives me a bigger edge at wide receiver and I can find big time breakouts at running backs in the later rounds. Now, again, I think this is all horse crap. I I don't buy this at all. I think if I get the one-on-one, I'm just taking McCaffrey every time because that's typically the only place I'm ever going to be able to get him. And chances are the more drafts I join, the more opportunities I'm going to have to draft from different positions in the first round. So Yeah, ultimately, I agree with you. If you have the 101, just take McCaffrey. Don't overthink it. But let's move on. Let's get to the third winningest RB from last season. That was Aaron Jones. He had about a 16% win rate on best ball tens, about a 20% win rate at FFPC. He was picked on average around the 30th pick overall, a mid-third rounder. But now he's going late in the first round. Are you willing to draft Aaron Jones where he's going? Or are you looking to other players between picks, say, 7 and pick 12? I am not remotely willing to draft him even in a variance capacity. 
this was probably the most touchdown-reliant player in the league last year in a running back timeshare that will remain a running back timeshare. And we're even hearing talk of they need a third guy in the mix. And now he's going as a first-round pick? Absolutely not. I will not touch him. And I would go so far to say just looking at the running backs by ADP, he probably shouldn't go until the late third round. How do you feel about that? I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's bold. I mean, relative to the consensus, and I get it. Like, people are just chasing points with him more than anything else. They're looking at what he did last season, assuming he's going to do the same thing. This happens across all positions in fantasy football every year. So if you're not looking at Jones, aside from Jones in that first round, which other first-round running backs do you think might have a good chance to bust this season? I don't believe that any of the other first-round backs have a chance to bust on the level that Aaron Jones does. I mean, if he goes backwards to just, say, negative outcome in relation to expected touchdowns, he could truly be a bust playing 16 games, which I don't think any of these other guys have a chance playing a full season to bust on the level of Jones. When we're looking at, obviously, at the very top, CMC, Barkley, Zeke, Cook, those guys have mega floors. You move to the middle of the round, now you have Kamara, Mixon, Derek, Henry, Chubb. Maybe a little bit more game script dependent for Mixon, Henry, Chubb, but at any rate, these guys' floor is crushing that of Jones, and they all arguably have a better ceiling as well. I could see it. I, I do have concerns about Mixon, just because I'm not sure how good that team is going to be. Like you said, there are game script concerns that come along with that. And I'm worried about Nick Chubb as well, if only because Kareem Hunt has the potential to take more opportunities from Chubb this season. We saw how Chubb's fantasy output slowed down in the second half of last year after Hunt got added to the mix. I'm worried that that's going to continue into this season. And I think there is a chance that maybe the Browns even realize that Hunt could be the better option for them than Chubb. I mean, Hunt has delivered on RB1 production in the past. There's no reason to think he couldn't do that again. Um, I'm not necessarily forecasting it. I still like Chubb, but those two guys I, I do have some concerns about. Of those top guys, the the four or five running backs at the top of ADP, the only one I really have concerns about is Ezekiel Elliott due to some potential degradation along the Cowboys offensive line. Their center, Travis Frederick, retired this offseason. A bunch of their other linemen dealt with injuries last season, Tyron Smith, Lyle Collins, Zach Martin. But that's really grasping at straws. I don't think we need to overthink the Zeke pick either. But yeah, I think Jones, Mixon, and Chubb all have some yellow or red flags, and that's concerning. Uh, do you typically draft wide receivers in that back half of the second or back half of the first round, TJ? From an ADP perspective, I think you're reaching a tad for running back if you're taking anyone after Kamara, specifically when you have uh, Tyreek and Nuke. Adams, those guys available to be had, and then you still have very sound running backs uh, coming back in the second round if you have a middling pick. So I would say tiny reach on any of the running backs uh, after Kamara, which would be Mixon, Henry Chubb, huge reach for Aaron Jones. Yeah, makes sense. Now, looking at where Aaron Jones went last season, if we're trying to come up with a corollary to this year, who is your favorite running back from that third or fourth round range? Boy, I hate to say it, man, but it's Jonathan Taylor. He truly has the ability to come and be an every-down back on the level of Saquon. The only concern is running backs just aren't going to be a priority in this draft. Despite my belief that he is on the level of Saquon as a prospect, 
he's not going to get the same draft capital, which means he could fall to a team that sees him as a value and end up in some sort of timeshare, which he'll ultimately overcome. It just might not be immediate. So even with that being the case, I think he brings a super solid floor there with absolute league winning potential uh, in the late third round. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. If we're looking for that player who could end up with a lot of touchdowns like Aaron Jones did last year, Taylor seems like a a good bet for that based upon that big workload that he handled in college. And I can't wait to see where he lands because we know the talent is there. If the opportunity is there too, he's going to rise up into the second round, maybe even the first round when it's all said and done. A few other players I like in that third to fourth round range, Devin Singletary, his ADP is around pick 27. I'm actually seeing him drafted more at the end of the second round than into that third round. So it's almost like he shouldn't count, but he was great last season after Frank Gore was phased out and the Bills offense should be even better this season with their addition of Stephon Diggs. I also kind of have a soft spot for James Conner, Mark Ingram, Marlon Mack, and, and I don't love any of these players. They're boring guys at this point and they are all have some risk of losing touches to other running backs, but we know that these players can produce when they're given opportunities. And I think that they're perfectly reasonable picks. If you end up going wide receiver with your first two rounds. Um, I also like Taylor. I like the other rookies in this range, uh, Deandre Swift, JK Dobbins, Again, mostly for that unknown upside, if they land in a good situation, we're going to see their ADP rise. And so if you take them now at a you know more of a cost that has their unknown factors baked into it, you might be getting a value there. So I, I think there are a lot of reasonable or guys you can chase in this range, especially if you end up going wide receiver in the first two rounds. There is one more that you said. Uh, the, the statement was if they end up in a good spot. I think one guy, another one in this range, has already ended up in a very sneaky but very good spot, and that's Melvin Gordon. Yeah. So he he would probably be next for me as far as attractiveness in that range. Yeah, my main concern with him is the fact that Royce Freeman is still there. Now, I know that the general consensus is that Freeman is just not going to be a, a major part of that offense, but I, I don't know if it's, if it's the Denver Broncos uniforms giving me like Mike Shanahan flashbacks, but I just am worried that's going to be some crazy three-headed monster timeshare. But the fact that they brought him in like they did, the fact that Philip Lindsay has been so much better than Royce Freeman to this point does make me think that Freeman is probably the odd man out there. But I have this little voice in the back of my head saying, like, be careful with this situation. That's probably fair. Uh, And while both Lindsay and Freeman are capable pass catchers, I think Melvin laps the field there. And we could see a spot where the time he loses is on early downs and he plays third downs. I think that would work best for the team. And it would also work best for fantasy players. So when those things align, I tend to attack it. Now, the rest of 2019's top four of highest win rate among running backs was made up of Austin Eckler. He was the second highest winning guy. And Miles Sanders, the fourth highest. Both of them were selected on average around the seventh or eighth round last year. So looking at that range, which running backs from, say, the sixth round to the eighth round are your best bets to return big values like that in 2020? Man, I don't see this season offering the same type of guys in that range. Uh, If I had to pick one, I guess CEH, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, would be the best candidate for it with Cam Akers very close. Two rookies that could land in a great spot and could smash, much much like Miles Sanders did late in the season. But overall, especially for the veterans in the league, this is not an attractive spot to take running back this year. Yeah, if I had to make the case for one or two 
veteran running backs in this spot. I would look at Darrell Henderson first. I think the draft capital the Rams spent on him last season should indicate an expanded role in 2020. Now, the reports coming out just this week are that they still want to use a committee approach. So that also has me intrigued about Malcolm Brown as potentially a better value, uh, but more on him later. He's going much later in ADP, so we can save that conversation. The other guy I like here is Kareem Hunt. For all the reasons that I had reservations about Nick Chubb as a first-rounder, I think Hunt could deliver big-time upside from this range of the draft. He's already proven he can be an RB1, like I said earlier, and the Browns' offense should lean run-heavy with Kevin Stefanski coaching. Uh, John Paulson talked about that a couple episodes. So if you know Nick Chubb gets hurt or something, look out. I think Hunt has big-time upside there. Yeah, I don't disagree. And with Kareem Hunt, we have a wild card that we don't really have with the rest of these guys. He's tendered. He could be traded. He could end up in a much better situation not competing with a guy on the level of Chubb for touches. That's a good point, too. Now, the only rusher drafted outside of the first eight rounds of ADP last season to return a top 12 running back win rate was Aaron Jones' teammate, Jamal Williams. He had about a 10% win rate in best ball tens and about an 11% win rate in the FFPC. And he was drafted all the way down in the 16th round on average. This illustrates some of those concerns you had with Jones, the fact that Jamal Williams was so involved last year. How does how late Williams went last year inform your overall draft strategy for the running running back position? For example, are you trying to make sure that you draft most of your running backs before a certain round, say like the eighth round or the ninth round or the 10th round? Because Williams was the only guy who ended up in that upper echelon of win rate and everyone else was drafted pretty highly. Does that give you concern with running backs and, and how does that inform your strategy for the position? A slight concern. Uh, strategy there is very much going to be based on draft slot drawn. Uh, let's say, for example, uh, before I give an example, let me just say I generally want to have three running backs on my team by the time this eighth round rolls around. So if I'm drafting from the one hole and I get McCaffrey, and then let's say Kenyon Drake is still there at 24, now I have McCaffrey and Drake, two surefire RB1s. I don't know how hot that is on Drake anymore, but two surefire RB1s on my team. Well, you know, maybe I'll just throw darts late in the draft at the position and load up somewhere else uh, for the rest of the single-digit rounds. But now if we're in a middle or late spot and we're taking someone like Tyreek or Nuke in the first round, Devontae Adams, then, yeah, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure I get three of these guys on my team. Later in the draft, as far as these dart throws go, I generally shy away from the guys who are in a timeshare, have a little floor, you know, eight points a week. I prefer to even wait longer and take the handcuffs. Not my own handcuffs, other guys' handcuffs. If I don't have Saquon on my team for, well, last year, then uh, Wayne Gallman was just a phenomenal pick, and he was always there at the very last uh, round of the draft. Now that's going to change this year with Deion Lewis in the mix, or we assume that'll change. But uh, we need to identify handcuffs beginning at the time of the NFL draft. And those are the very attractive pieces as far as late running backs. Yeah, I'm not going to set a hard and fast rule based upon last year's results in terms of where I want to draft all my running backs because every season is different. But I will say that in all of the best ball drafts I've done so far, I've ended up with at least four running backs by the 10th round. And in almost all of those drafts, I've drafted at least three running backs by the sixth round. This is generally just how I approach the format, uh, and that's how it's played out for me. Now, 
again, getting back to the idea of diversification, I should probably mix that up a little bit and go for some more wide wide receiver heavy builds uh, with some later drafts. Uh, But for now, I am trying to load up on the bulk of my running back starters in those early rounds. Uh, You know, by the eighth, ninth, or tenth round, I want to have four to six, if or excuse me, three to four in that span, if I can. Now, if you are wading into those late round waters in search of this year's Jamal Williams, you, you mentioned some of those handcuff types. Which running backs are you targeting? Well, unfortunately, Tony Pollard doesn't quite fall as late as I would like, but he's a good cuff to have. And we don't truly know uh, handcuffs outside of perhaps Alexander Madison at this point. Uh, McCaffrey, we assume Bonifon, but that is wide open. Kamara, we know it's Latavius. That's going to cost too much. We don't know who's behind Mixon. We probably don't know who's behind Henry. And we talked about Chubb with Kareem Hunt. So we don't have a whole lot of identifiable handcuffs at this point. But we will as the season progresses. And that's something to really, really be adaptive to as the information comes out. For sure, because you can get ahead of ADP on those players once the situations solidify. Like once we figure out who that handcuff is, if there was any question mark around that player leading up into this point, that player's draft cost is going to be suppressed because of that. And as soon as he becomes, you know, a known handcuff, a, a clear backup to a high-end starter, then that is a situation where that player's ADP is going to rise. And so you can start to pick them ahead of their ADP, anticipating that rise to some extent. You don't want to overdo it, of course, but um, you know it is something you got to think about. Uh, some of the players I've been looking at in that vein, uh, Justice Hill, I, I don't love the pick, but he, he's a guy that I think has that upside if Mark Ingram gets hurt, if Gus Edwards gets hurt in year two to kind of take a step forward. I mentioned Malcolm Brown earlier. He seems like a really great arbitrage for Darrell Henderson, who's going much higher uh, based upon you know his kind of younger sex appeal, uh, to, for lack of a better word, uh, as the Rams running back. Jamal Williams, again, this year seems reasonable. Uh, Chase Edmonds behind Kenyon Drake. And uh, circling back to what you said earlier, I do think you are crazy to think you can get Kenyon Drake at pick 24. I, I don't think he's going to go that late anymore, but we'll see. Another player who I've seen hyped up a little bit in this vein, I'm curious to get your temperature on him, TJ, is Naheem Hines on the Colts. Is he a player you have any interest in now that Phillip Rivers is the quarterback there in Indianapolis? No, I really don't have interest at all. And just because Rivers was a checkdown machine to players like Gordon and Eckler, um, to use an analogy that I used on the DCC pod recently, Phillip Rivers landing in Indy doesn't make Naheem Hines, Austin Eckler, any more than Brady landing in Tampa makes O.J. Howard grunk. You know, it isn't going to happen here. The Indianapolis team is going to be very much improved. And we're talking about a scat back that will see more touches as their team does worse. Uh, Marlon Max also game script dependent. But when they're winning or neutral, he's going to be the guy getting the touches. I don't really have interest in Hines at all. And uh, a couple of guys... Uh, you said Malcolm Brown, and oh man, nothing screams sex appeal like Malcolm Brown. <laughs> but on, on a serious note, he's perfectly fine. I, I'm perfectly happy to own him. I do think he actually leads that team in touches if they don't spend on a back, which I tend to lean towards. They are going to draft a back. I think they're. I think they're going to try to recapture the magic of Gurley. But uh, two guys going later in the draft. 
Uh, overall ADP after 180, Rashad Penny is forgotten. He's absolutely forgotten because he got injured, and he's a screaming value. I love the discount that we're getting on him because of that injury, and it's great. If you're on some of these draft platforms, you can click that little news icon that's next to their name, and it'll say, you know, Rashad Penny not expected to be ready for the start of the season. Might land on Pup to start the year. One, we're really far away from week one. We don't really know how accurate that sort of report is going to be. And two, that doesn't matter as much in best ball, right? Because we don't need Penny to be a starter for us in week one or week two or week three because we're drafting other players at higher cost to cover that range. What we want from Penny is just a certain number of usable weeks. And I mean, for a running back, how many do we really need? You know, like eight or nine weeks total, maybe even less than that altogether. If Penny can do that after he returns, even if he does land on Pup, I think that that does make him a really good bargain where he's going because I just don't see the Seahawks moving forward with Chris Carson as a workhorse guy anymore. I feel like that ship has sailed. What about you? I, I could not agree more. And I think it was super obvious last season how much more juice Penny had, particularly in the passing game. The offense was better with him. I mean, there are still some raw elements to his game, but Chris Carson is just get what's blocked, fall forward kind of guy. There's nothing exciting there. Uh, that's exactly why Pete Carroll loves him, that idiot. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, that team could have been a dynasty if they had a better, better coach in place, which is sad. I mean, there's been a lot of wasted Russell Wilson. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one. I... I... I'm a Niners fan, but I still love watching Russell Wilson play. It is a shame that his career has not been better, but um, we're going to get to quarterbacks later. i got a few more running back questions for you. <laughs> Damian Harris. It's a muddy situation in the New England backfield, as usual. James White is still there. Sonny Michelle is still there. Rex Burkhead might be coming back. I actually don't know his contract situation, but the Pats did invest a fair amount of draft capital on Harris last year. He was a good player in college. One of the Ever-present mantras in fantasy football in recent years has been, take the Patriots running back that costs the least. And right now that's Damian Harris, and that has me intrigued. I'm not taking him in every best ball draft, but I am taking him here and there on the chance that he can pass Sony Michelle or James White or someone else on that depth chart. Do you think that's crazy? What do you think about Damian Harris? I don't think it's crazy, but also I don't know if we have a feel for what's what there right now. What we have or at least my slight feel at the very least, is that Belichick finds a way to not play the guys he doesn't like, regardless of what they cost in the draft. And this has a Stephen Ridley feel to it. You know, the fact that Harris was not at all used last year, I think it speaks volumes, especially considering how pedestrian or worse Sony Michelle was. Yeah, that is a bit of a red flag. It's hard to know if Harris was dealing with his own injuries, if the concerns about him were more due to something like pass protection with the way that Brady was being a bit of a diva last season. Um, I, I, I could see that sort of narrative playing out. But again, this is all speculative and what he showed us on the field should matter more. So I'm glad that you brought that up. That is kind of a good dose of cold water to throw on my Damian Harris take. But I'm, I'm still going to draft him here and there, I think, because again, we've seen this sort of situation play out with Patriots running backs in the past. 
Um, and, and in general, I think that there's a good chance they end up being a lot more run-heavy this year than they have in the past couple. Uh, so anyway, uh, stay tuned for that. Very good chance they have to be. They may not have a choice in the matter. Sure. I want to circle back to something you talked about in terms of drafting handcuffs and how you won't handcuff your own guys. But in instances where there are two players who are a little bit more affordable, are you willing to draft two ball carriers from the same squad? Like last year, I think it would have been somewhat reasonable to take both Aaron Jones at a third round price tag and Jamal Williams at a 16th round price tag. And this year, I'm looking at that duo of Darrell Henderson and Malcolm Brown because they're both cheap enough to the point where I don't mind stacking them. Am I giving up too much upside by you know pilfering touches from myself, essentially, by taking two guys from the same team when I draft like that? What's your take on maybe drafting two running backs from the same team? I think in that specific instance, it's okay. It's viable. Me, personally, I will wait till after the draft to do it because if you see the Rams spend a day to pick on a back now you have teams with two backs that very well could not even be the top back on their own team that particular strategy for me becomes more viable after the nfl draft but the team you brought up is the exact correct one to do it with if you're going to do it right now yeah and i think the reason for that and the reason why i'm willing to do it right now is because well you said you expect the rams to maybe draft a running back I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense for them after what they spent on Darrell Henderson last year. Like I, I could see them, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, looking at this like, hey, we drafted this guy last year for a reason. If we're not going to use him now, if we're going to just draft some other running back to replace him, that doesn't make sense personally. Now, that's not to say that it might not make sense to them. I am not an NFL GM, and because rookies generally are on such cheap contracts, it could make some sense to them to say, okay, we don't think Darrell Henderson has it. We're going to throw a pick at a new running back. Or, or maybe it's Malcolm Brown that they don't feel that way about. But I'm just hoping, you know, fingers crossed, that they're going to stick to their evaluation from last season, carry that into this year, and that's what makes them potential values to me here. Uh, I, I don't know. That's just the way I see it. There is one other thing to explore on that. And while we think it may be nonsensical, and it probably is, to feel a need to be three deep at running back in the NFL. Last season with Gurley under contract, they matched an offer sheet that the Lions signed Brown to and then still drafted Henderson. So that's probably the main main rationale for me believing that they drafted back or more probable than not. Yeah, that's a great point. There's precedent there that they want to have three running backs. That's a really good point. That's all I've really got on running backs for now, TJ. Is there any other RB-centric advice you want to impart to the listeners before we move on? Man, I, I think the biggest takeaway right now is fade Aaron Jones. That <laughs> I think you'll win more leagues just completely fading him at price. I'm not sure where Philip Lindsay is going right now, but I believe he would be a strong fade as well. And that's just a byproduct of believing Mel- Melvin is a value. Yeah, I like it. Let's get into defense. And I want to start with some notes on roster construction here. How many defenses should we be drafting? Because we can find a baseline answer, thanks to Chris Allen, who I mentioned earlier at 4 for 4. He's run the numbers to figure out what the winningest roster constructions did last year, both at the FFPC and at Fanball. Both those articles are going to be linked in the show notes for your reference listeners. At the FFPC, where rosters are bigger... Chris found that the top four roster constructions and eight of the top 12 drafted three defenses, while the remaining top 12 roster constructions 
only drafted two defenses. Over at Fanball, we see the opposite because the rosters are a little bit smaller. The top four roster constructions and eight of the top 12 drafted only two defenses, while the remaining top 12 constructions drafted three. So, TJ, how do you judge when to go against the grain and draft a a quote-unquote suboptimal number of defenses? For example, drafting only two defenses at the FFPC or drafting the full three in a best ball 10? I I would say the players that fall to this, say, the 14th and 15th round range could be a big determining factor. Uh, If you're getting some huge value there where you have an unexpected depth at a position that was maybe a worry going into the last rounds of the draft, then now all of a sudden you can take an extra defense. That would be on the fan ball side. Conversely, on the FFPC side, I, I definitely don't love drafting defenses. I always want to. I don't care about the format. <laughs> I don't believe they're, generally speaking, going to be league winners as long as you're getting production. I was trying to make a case for drafting more defenses and i really just got away from myself because i only want to it's the most flat position only draft two defenses would be my advice in every format yeah i'm actually with you there i I totally agree Uh, unless i've screwed up by drafting two defenses with the same bye week my short answer is that i typically won't deviate i i want to dedicate my picks for depth to other positions where injuries have an in-season effect a defense can't get injured they can only miss time to a bye week that's it But if I really happen to like my draft through the first 15 rounds or so, like you talked about, I might consider going after that extra defense in a best ball 10 if I like the way that their schedules line up too. That's another aspect of this. I want to look at, you know, hopefully after the schedule is announced, the strength of schedule for the different teams trying to line up when my defenses are going to be squaring off against other bad teams. But that might even be reading it a little bit too deep because strength of schedule is really tough to forecast year to year because there's a lot of turnover in the NFL. But, but that's one other thing you can look at. In the FFPC, it's a little different. If I don't like how my draft has been going in terms of other positions, I might feel the need to bolster my depth at those spots at the expense of a third defense. But in general, that's the way I'm going to look at it anyway. Like you, I think that only having two is fine. I I want to differentiate my rosters in other ways. I want to build depth at running back, at wide receiver, at tight end, at quarterback, because my defenses are never at risk of getting hurt. That's not something I have to worry about. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And the flat scoring can't be emphasized enough. And the historical inability for fantasy players to predict the top defenses, it can't be understated. Uh, How many times in the last X number of years has the top defense drafted been the top scoring defense? Yeah, for sure. Um, What is the earliest you'll draft a defense in a best ball? Uh, Let's say 16th round. Yeah, I would say 16th, 17th for me. Uh, Of the ones that are being drafted that highly this year, which, if any, do you think are worth paying up for? Ooh. None. <laughs> the, the the bears the bears are in for a good bounce back. I do believe. I I, I would post hype go after the bears. Yeah, and I mean, and the reason to not go after these ones that are the most expensive is just what you talked about. We have a really hard time predicting who the best defenses are going to be. The best defense and win rate last year on both platforms was you know no shock New England. But they were not, say, a, a top eight defense, probably not even top 10, if I remember correctly. I'd, I'd have to look that up. I, I should have done my prep at this part of the podcast. But needless to say, they were not drafted as a, a top unit 
and they were the best one to have. So on that note, which defenses do you think are the most undervalued at this point in the offseason besides the Bears who you just mentioned? This might have a hint of homerism to it, but the Browns. I, I do believe Miles Garrett's back on the field week one. I think they're going to be a better coached unit and one truly capable of sack turnover points every week. I like that you said that because I've been drafting them a lot. Uh, a few other teams that I've been ending up with a lot are the Kansas City Chiefs, if only because I love having those defenses that are tied to elite offenses, You know, teams that put the opposing offense into predictable game script. If the Kansas City Chiefs know that you're throwing the ball to keep up with Patrick Mahomes and company, that's going to make it easier for them to rush the passer, to intercept passes, all that. And that's what I want out of my fantasy defense. Uh, I've also been targeting the Chargers a fair amount, just based upon the upgrades that they've made there, bringing in Chris Harris. Uh, I like the moves that the Eagles have made this offseason, and they were a defense I was interested in last year. They didn't really pan out for me, but I'm going back to the well with the Eagles And I've got a little bit of love for a a, a real deep dart throw, but I'm going to save them for later. But based upon the expectation that each team in a best ball is going to want two to three defenses, say in a best ball 10, that means we can expect 25 to 28 different defenses to be picked over the course of any given draft. Uh, In an FFPC, probably all the defenses are going to get picked because most people are trying to get three. I want to dig into the dregs of the position, those really late round defenses that are out there. Which from that bottom eight in ADP do you like the most? We're talking about the Atlanta Falcons, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Miami Dolphins, the Carolina Panthers, the Arizona Cardinals, Detroit Lions, New York Giants, Cincinnati Bengals. Who do you like? I actually have a very confident pick of this group, and it might be a surprising one. Uh, The Dolphins for me, and it's for a variety of reasons. They're a well-coached team that's going to have real personnel upgrades. The divisional schedule, all of a sudden, is fantastic. Right now, we're looking at a team that gets to see Jarrett Stidham twice a year. Josh Allen, as we know, is very capable of pick sixes. And two games with Adam Gase, that'll be under 24 points total. So (laughs) I I think the Dolphins are the layup from that group. What about you? Yeah, they were on my list. I love the team scheme and infrastructure. It seems like that's really strong since they made their coaching changes last year. I don't know how much improvement we can count on, but I'm counting on some amount of it. And like you said, the schedule lines up really well. I am willing to throw darts at Atlanta. They should be healthier on that side of the ball this season. I do have some concerns about their division, though, going up against Tampa Bay and New Orleans. And while Carolina, I think, is is not a terrible opponent to face, that's not a team I'm super excited about playing a defense against uh, just because they still have a lot of good weapons there. And Teddy Bridgewater is a conservative quarterback, to say the least. Another team I'm moderately interested in as a dart throw are the Raiders. Mike Wollert talked about this on our all-defense show, but they did add Corey Littleton and Nick Kiwakowski in free agency, a couple linebackers. They should be improved on that side of the ball. I'm not super excited about that pick. The one that I really like, and this is probably going to sound completely ridiculous to you and to the listeners, are the Arizona Cardinals. I just like that thought of them stealing the Tampa Bay defense's fantasy blueprint from 2019. High-volume offense creating extra possessions for the opposing offenses, and that means just more opportunities for sacks and turnovers from the Cardinals' defense. Am I completely insane, or does that kind of idea have any merit for you? No, you're, you're not at all insane. I worry that the tight end thing is a schematic thing that won't be fixed. 
and they're just going to get run up on the point side of things. But you're 100% correct that more possessions equals more points for both offense and defense. There's just nothing arguable about that. They were my consolation prize here to Miami. I think you picked the right one to start this question off with the Dolphins. Uh, But if I had to pick another one from outside of the Dolphins in this group, I think it is the Cardinals. And it's risky, but that's what these best ball drafts are all about is you you take calculated risks. And I think that it could make sense with the Cardinals, not at a high volume, but every once in a while, make them the low end defense that you draft in the last round. Anything else on defense before we move on to quarterback? No, nothing more on defense. That's a position I like to get through in a hurry. Sorry, listeners, but defense is still defense. (laughs) All right, let's get into QBs. And unsurprisingly, the highest win rate quarterback last year was Lamar Jackson, about a 21% win rate in best ball tens, about a 20.5% win rate at the FFPC. But he was drafted in the 10th or 11th round on average last year. And now he's going in the late second or early third on average. Jackson's fantasy potential isn't in question, and he definitely deserves to be drafted higher than he was last year. But do you think he can maintain a top 12 win rate at his current draft cost? No, I do not. The The reason his, his win rate was so high last year, as you mentioned, was the cost. You know, you're, you're getting the QB1, but you're paying QB16 price. So the cost was the bigger factor in that. The output was obviously amazing and it will continue to be amazing perhaps not on the same level perhaps slightly more but i don't think the optimal strategy is to continue to take lamar only because of the price spike yeah there's just too much opportunity cost you're giving up at running back and at wide receiver and at tight end to make that pick you could have george kittle there who is a you know much more differentiating type of pick over the rest of players at the at his position you can pass on Lamar Jackson in the third round and still get Patrick Mahomes in the fourth round right you can't pass on George Kittle in the late second and get an equivalent tight end in the fourth round it just doesn't work like that unfortunately so if you're looking to gain some sort of advantage at the onesie positions I think it's much wiser to do that at tight end in that second round than to look at someone like Lamar Jackson, as awesome as Jackson is. Um, now, if you're in a best ball draft with a top overall prize against a bunch of other best ball leagues, does that mean you might be more willing to pay up for an elite quarterback like Jackson or like Mahomes? No, I think I'd even be less likely to do so. Uh, the reasoning there is there are so many teams you're going against and I mean so many teams, you need to be perfect. And being perfect means smashing the quarterback position much later in the draft. And that could be as late as taking your QB1 11th, 12th round. Yeah, I think the only argument to being more willing to pay up for one of these elite QBs is being more willing to have that one share of a guy. Because like you said, you generally want to have a piece of all the guys, especially the lower end ones who have super high upside to spike like Lamar Jackson did last season. With that said, if it's going to be a lot easier to pick up those types of players at quarterback. You're not going to have as many opportunities to get Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes under their ADP cost. So if you want to spend one of your many best ball drafts taking the shot on you know, saying that Mahomes has a Peyton Manning 2013 season, I can't begrudge anybody from doing that, especially because Mahomes is going 
reasonably later than Lamar Jackson. You can get Mahomes in the fourth round. And I think you can make an even stronger case for the guys who are going even later. Uh, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson. All these guys have that upside to be the overall QB1, and they're just so much cheaper than Lamar Jackson. I totally agree with you, though. At a base level, if you're trying to win an overall, late-round quarterback is the way to go. You want to find the guy who completely blows up above his ADP, and the higher a quarterback is going, the less likely that guy is going to be able to return significant value on his draft cost. Another interesting note from the win rate data is how important it was to have a rushing quarterback in best ball tens, specifically last season. Six of the top seven QBs had an element of rushing production in their games. Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Josh Allen, and Kyler Murray. So with that in mind, do you make the rushing archetype of quarterback a priority when you're drafting in a best ball 10? Generally speaking, it's a good idea, but the whole world made the adjustment. Yeah. These guys are all being drafted first, and it makes sense. But now we've created a situation where these pocket passers might be the more valuable from a sole value and point-to-draft position perspective. We have guys way down the board that are just primed for a bounce-back year. Guys like Stafford, who was pacing big, and he's forgotten. I mean, he's completely forgotten. And Baker, who is set up for a big bounce back. You know, these guys are going, what, 10-11 turn? Yeah, Mayfield specifically was a guy being drafted as the QB6, the QB7 last year. And there was optimism for him in that regard. Now, he didn't deliver on it, but he does seem like the perfect candidate for a post-hype buy, for sure. Now, getting back to that idea of rushing quarterbacks, I totally agree with you. It's been priced into all of the known quantities at the position. But there are still some budget options that you can pay down for who offer some amount of rushing production. Daniel Jones, Carson Wentz, Ryan Tannehill, Cam Newton, if he can ever manage to find a team. Gardner Minshew rushed a lot last year. I don't know if we can necessarily count on that to keep up in year two. Uh, Tyrod Taylor and Jarrett Stidham. Taylor and Stidham are both essentially free. If you can expect those guys to hold a starting role all season long, and I'm not there yet with Taylor. I'm, I'm closer to that idea with Stidham, those guys could, based upon their rushing production, deliver big-time value. I, I think that those are the types of players you can target. Um, of the guys who are more reasonably going to be drafted in every draft, I think Daniel Jones and Ryan Tannehill are probably the two most interesting because we saw what they could do in flashes last season. Do you like one of those guys more than the other, TJ? I don't think I like one more than the other, but I certainly like both. And I think that list, including Wentz that you just named, that really should spell out why you shouldn't feel a need to rush towards any quarterback. We really do have a fairly solid group of guys to feel comfortable drafting, and you don't have to spend on them during the running back must-have period of your drafts. And we covered the running backs earlier where we want to have three by the eighth round, if not four. So why waste, a, uh, not waste, but why use a pick on a quarterback? It, it really is shooting yourself in the foot, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier with the pocket passers. Because everyone is pumping up those rushing guys into the top eight, we're going to create value with a handful of players who don't have that rushing production, whether it's Matt Ryan getting back to his MVP form or Carson Wentz getting back to his previous form thanks to having healthy receivers in 2020. These are all narratives that we can paint and we need to consider when we're drafting. And all these guys are much, much cheaper than the more dedicated rushing-centric quarterbacks that are going earlier. I've 
mentioned that this is specific to best ball 10s, it is worth noting that in the FFPC, they boost up passing yardage scoring. It's 20 yards per point compared to 25 yards per point in BB10s. And as a result, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Josh Allen, and Kyler Murray all did rank lower in their FFPC win rate than they did in best ball 10 win rate, while pocket passers like Matt Ryan, like Tom Brady, ranked much higher in win rate at FFPC last year. So keep that in mind, depending upon your format here. It does make a difference. Overall, though, last year's win rate data confirms that late-round quarterback drafting was the way to go. In best ball 10s, none of the top 12 quarterbacks in terms of win rate were drafted before the seventh round, and most of them were drafted between rounds 10 and 13. In FFP best balls, none of the top 12 were drafted before the sixth round, and most were drafted between rounds 8 and 11. In both cases, Deshaun Watson was the earliest drafted quarterback to crack the top 12 in win rate. He was the pick 707 on average in best ball 10s and 6.09 in FFPCs. So with that in mind, what is the earliest you'll consider drafting a quarterback in a typical best ball league? Judging by what we have available, I would consider Mahomes in the fourth round. I don't want to rule him out, and I think there's a big difference in the skill position availability uh, between the third round and fourth round. So there is a difference there in still being able to get Mahomes from Lamar. That said, when we're looking at all the quarterbacks available from the ninth, but more specifically the 10th and 11th round, we're passing on a Josh Allen or an Aaron Rodgers, and we're getting a Carson Wentz and a Tannehill and a Stafford and a Mayfield. This is no-brainer stuff. We're talking about guys who I would project to easily outscore the guys being drafted ahead of them. So I will go so far to say is the ninth round is what I want to start considering, not necessarily taking. Yeah, I think everything here has to be relative to ADP. So if Lamar Jackson slides into the late third round or early fourth round, I would consider him there. And like you said with Mahomes, because... We know what he's capable of, that he has that overall QB1 well within his range of outcomes. Like I think you could easily make the case that he should still be drafted ahead of Lamar Jackson. If he's going behind Lamar Jackson, that means you're potentially getting a value. So I can justify Mahomes in the fourth as well, but I agree with you. If we're talking about QBs at their ADP, I'm generally waiting until at least the seventh round, if not later. I'd prefer to wait later if I could. I'm really looking to find guys that are sliding past their ADP. The later I wait to get my first signal caller, though, the more likely I am to consider drafting three of them instead of two in a best ball 10. In FFPC, that's less of a concern. You're probably going to draft three in most of your leagues anyway. But in best ball 10s, the longer I wait to get my first one, the more likely I am to draft three in total. Which mid-tier players should you target in a 2020 draft from outside that top handful of quarterbacks? Because we can all agree that those Russian guys we talked about earlier are good assets to own if you can get them below their ADP. But when we are looking to that mid-tier, who are your favorite players? I, I, I've kind of jumped the gun on a few of them. Uh, we, we talked about Wentz. We talked about Tanny. We talked about Daniel Jones, Stafford, Mayfield. Um, I'll go a little bit beyond that. If we go even later in the draft, Jimmy G is a nice value here uh, sitting I believe he's at the 13-14 turn. 4K yards in his first season as a starter. Uh, I think they're going to draft another receiver in this class, which we've seen what that offense can get out of a rookie wide receiver with Debo last year. Hopefully Kittle doesn't have to be just a blocker like he was down the stretch. And I, I don't see 
any room for a downward trajectory uh, from Jimmy G for this season. So that seems like a value to me. Yeah, he was on my list as well. He was up and down last year, and that's kind of the nature of the way Kyle Shanahan schemes his game plans. But up and down is okay in best ball. You don't need him to produce every week. You just need to have him blow up in a handful of weeks and be serviceable the rest of the time. And I, I think he's a, a really good candidate for that. Skill, scaling back up ADP a little bit, I want to ask you about a couple players. And m- maybe these guys are players you're avoiding. Um, you mentioned the guys you liked in that kind of mid-tier but one name you did not mention was Tom Brady. He's got a big upgrade from last season in terms of weapons and offensive scheme. He's going as the QB 14 in ADP around pick 125 in best ball 10s. Are you interested in Brady at all at that cost? It just seems a little bit too high. I believe the I believe one specific wide receiver is going to make a living off Brady like all of his slot, slot guys have done in the past, and that's Godwin, who already broke out. He's in the perfect system and now has the perfect quarterback to hammer him. But I'm not sold that the touchdowns will fully be there for Brady. I do believe they draft a back. I believe that they are able to run more when they don't have only sub-replacement level players in the backfield. So it should be more balanced. They want to be more balanced. And I think Godwin is the one that lives on the PPRs, but the touchdowns for Brady aren't going to be there. Uh, I did want to offer one more guy down the list some more. It's someone I want to stack. When I draft Noah Fant, go ahead and stack him with Locke. Those big plays will get double usable weeks. Another guy I wanted to ask you about was Jared Goff. It seems like he's a strong candidate for some positive regression this year, but I still don't trust him. I just don't think he's that great of a player. What's your read on Goff? Uh, Same as you. He's not that great of a player. Uh, he, he's truly a candidate to lead the league in interceptions, if not the favorite, uh, with Jameis not having a job. And what is your take on Cam Newton right now? Because like Winston, Newton doesn't have a job, but I, I see where Newton is going as the QB 26 behind Drew Locke. And the upside just seems so immense to me that I feel like he's worth the late round gamble. How about you? I'm not sure he finds a team. Uh, I, I think we really could go into the season with Jameis and Cam both looking for teams and waiting for a camp injury. Cam is the type of player whose skill set will decline at this age, and I believe he's entering his age 30 season, if not age 31. He definitely is not effective when he can't use his legs. We saw last year what happens when he's forced to kind of stand in the pocket and asked to be someone he's not. He's simply not effective if he can't carry the ball often. What's your take on Derek Carr? He's going as the QB 30, around pick 230 in best ball 10s. And I do think there is some risk of him being replaced by another quarterback being added to the Raiders. But still, his job security seems better to me than that of Gardner Minshew and Ryan Fitzpatrick, who are both going ahead of Carr on average. I think that this is a case where the value is finally caught up to Carr because I've never liked him in the past however many seasons. But now that he's going as the QB 30, I think that that's relatively appropriate. And if he's your QB 3 or your QB 2 behind, say, someone like Mahomes or Lamar Jackson, that could make some sense to me. I, I don't know, though. I'm not sold on it because like Goff, I, don't, I just don't like Carr. But the price seems right. What do you think? Uh, the price is fair enough, I suppose. If if you're needing a QB3 and you waited a little bit too long and went off the cliff, okay. But we, we've we got a guy in Marcus Mariota who, who comes in now 
watched what Tannehill did to him, and he's going to be really motivated to do the same thing. And we know that Gruden wanted Carr to be more aggressive, and it just feels like it's not in Carr's DNA, and he's it never isn't. going to get there on the level that Gruden wants him to, right? So Mariota's going to march in. He's going to, at some point, take the starting job. He's going to say, I'm going to pull the Tannehill until he actually has to be effective, and he will continue not to be. And then we could see a spot where they switch back to Carr. It's going to be a mess in Oakland this year. And I think that's a great way to frame something that I hadn't really, I, I couldn't really wrap my brain around how to put it with Carr, but that fact that he isn't aggressive enough is exactly the right reason to avoid him in a best ball because we want high, high upside outcomes, right? We don't want dink and dunk plays. We want big plays. And Carr, it just isn't in his nature to deliver those on a very consistent basis. And that's why I think it is reasonable for him to go behind Gardner Minshew and Ryan Fitzpatrick because at the very least, we know those guys are going to take risks. And that matters in this format. So that's a really good point. I, I appreciate that. A couple other guys that I like that are going super, super late. I touched on them. I touched on Jarrett Stidham a little bit earlier. All indications are that the Patriots are willing to roll with him as their starter, and he's effectively free in drafts. He offers some potential for rushing production as well, which we mentioned earlier in Best Ball 10s is helpful. He's a guy I like. He's going as the QB 36. The guy going just ahead of him at QB 35 right now is Nick Foles. Did the Bears trade for him not to start him? I don't see it. I think the question is just whether or not Foles himself is good enough to hold a job for a full season. I'm not sure if that's the case. But again, at QB 35, you're not paying anything to find that out. If he's your QB 3 after you draft some riskier QB 1 and QB 2 options, I like him as a very late round value as your QB 3, Foles and Stidham. What do you think of those two guys? Uh, Stidham is a guy I'm struggling with. And here's the best best analogy I can make on him. Knowing what we know of a guy like Jeff Driscoll, who I, I think is eerily similar, if you knew he was going to be the starter of the Patriots for 16 games, where would you slot him in drafts? Well, I, I think he's obviously still a QB3. He's not a QB2. Uh, you probably get some spike week r- rushing production. But, man, that offense could just completely stall uh, with him under center. Foles, on the other hand, he got a good gig. Uh, Whoever the Bears brought in, they were going to give Mitchell the chance to compete and ultimately lose. It's just setting up for, oh, the guy we brought in earned it. Let's get his confidence high, rah, rah, rah. They got some good weapons in place there, and Foles proved he's good enough. You know, he's not. Jarrett Stidham level so absolutely I would take Foles over Stidham at this moment uh your QB3 is generally going to be a safety blanket so Foles definitely offers that yeah and don't don't get me wrong listeners I'm not advocating that we target these guys as our QB3s if we're really looking to draft three guys ultimately I, I would rather have three better ones than having my QB3 be Jarrett Stidham or Nick Foles this is more of a break glass in case of emergency sort of scenario right where Sometimes a draft just breaks in a way where when you're getting right when you're getting ready to draft a quarterback or a onesie position like tight end, there's a run on the position and then you feel like the value is gone. So you go a different direction. You take another wide receiver or another running back. And then by the time you're ready to look back at quarterback again, 
the same thing might happen. And and so you might propagate through a draft, like kind of cascade through the rounds, keep thinking you're going to get that QB2 or that QB3, and it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. It's just the breaks of that one particular draft. And in those sorts of cases, that's where you kind of have to grasp at straws with Derek Carr, with Nick Foles, with Jared Stidham. And, and so that's kind of the the picture I'm trying to paint here. Not as guys we're outright targeting, but guys that I'm intrigued by and willing to draft based upon where they're going. Yeah, man, uh, you were talking about going off the quarterback cliff, and that's why you would end up with these guys. And that's the absolute case. You know, Say you draft Mahomes in the fourth round. Okay, now I'm only going to draft two quarterbacks. Oh, we had a quarterback run right before me. It happens once, it happens twice. Well, now completely off the cliff, you're left with a guy like Foles as a safety blanket, and that's okay. Are there any quarterbacks that you're outright avoiding in 2020? Absolutely. Aaron Rodgers. I've been doing it for years, and it's been paying off. I've never seen someone make a living off of his name in his previous form than Rodgers has. There's been no one in history from a fantasy perspective, and it's unbelievable that people think that somehow there's going to be some statistical bounce back to 2012, avoiding at all costs Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, where he's going on cost, he was easily one of the guys that I wanted to avoid. Uh, I think you could make a similar case for Carson Wentz because he's going in the same range. And it's like if you're going to draft a guy there, maybe just pay up around and get one of those more prolific rushers or just wait a little bit longer and get some of these other values that we've talked about. I, I do have some concerns about Matthew Stafford just based purely on health. I know that you've talked him up as a potential guy to target. I, I'm worried about him long term after the season he just had. And we mentioned Goff earlier. He's another player I'm avoiding just because I, I don't think he's that good. At the lower end of ADP, there isn't anybody who I'll outright avoid because, again, we're talking about these safety blanket type plays, and generally we're talking about QB3s, uh, so so we can't be too picky. But uh, up at the higher ranges of ADP, Rodgers, Wentz, Goff, Stafford, those are the ones that concern me the most. Yeah, I'll even add one. I'll say at cost, I'm avoiding Josh Allen. Uh, He does bring a sound floor. He really does, don't get me wrong. But when he's going in the neighborhood of Let's just pick a name and say Jarvis Landry. He's never going to be as useful to your team as that wide receiver is going to be. Yeah, and Allen specifically has a lot of the same indicators that Mitchell Trubisky had in previous years before he kind of fell off the face of the earth in fantasy. Reliant on rushing production, not a very accurate passer. If defenses start to figure Allen out a little bit more, I'm not saying he's going to fall off the cliff exactly like Trubisky did, but he could underperform relative to that draft cost, right? We're drafting Allen higher this year, and that could very well be a mistake. I'm not opposed to drafting him at and around cost, but I do agree that there is some concern there. Now, let's talk just generally a little bit more about quarterbacks to close things down. How aggressively are you trying to stack quarterbacks with their pass catchers and maybe even with their running backs? Uh, I generally am completely agnostic to it. I'm happy to do it if it falls that way. If it's a tiebreaker, sure, I'll add it on there for the ceiling weeks. But unless we're talking about, I, I don't even know a connection that I would specifically force to happen. But I did mention uh, Fant and Locke earlier. And with Fant being such a good run after the catch guy, uh, there will be some games where he makes Locke hit uh, and become a reasonable QB1, QB2 for that week. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree with your general take that I'm not outright looking to stack but i will make them if they're cost effective 
for me, some examples that I've, I haven't even landed all these, but ones that I've considered in my draft so far are with the Giants, you know, Daniel Jones and his pass catchers, because Jones is relatively cheap and most of his wide receivers are relatively cheap. One of those guys is going to be a wide receiver one in fantasy, or at least close to it, maybe a wide receiver 1.5, if you want to call it that. And if you can stack Jones with that player and one of the other receivers there, I think you set yourself up for a really good floor because we know they're going to throw in New York. Their defense is not going to be very good. Jones is going to have to keep chucking it. Another one I like is stacking Ryan Tannehill with Derrick Henry. It might seem counterintuitive to stack a quarterback with his running back, especially when that running back isn't catching passes. But this is more of a a kind of a reverse correlation play. I'm just investing in all of Tennessee's touchdowns when I take Tannehill and Henry together. What do you think about that sort of stack, TJ? That's super sound, and it's a it, it's honestly a great DFS cash strategy as well that I'm fully on board with. Another one that I'm intrigued by but I haven't really targeted is with the Steelers, taking Ben Roethlisberger with his pass catchers. I think Juju Smith-Schuster seems a little undervalued to me at this point where he's going relative to other wide receivers, and Roethlisberger is pretty cheap. You can get him based upon you know the recency bias associated with his injury from last year. I, I'm not super confident in Roethlisberger holding up again over the course of a full season. I think he's risky, but again, some risk in best ball is fine. And if you stack him with Juju and maybe one of the other pass catchers there in Pittsburgh, I like that stack. And the one I've been actually ending up with a lot is with the Texans drafting Deshaun Watson and stacking him with Will Fuller, Kenny Stills, and or maybe even David Johnson. I, I have a feeling that the Texans are going to draft a wide receiver. And that's going to muddy the waters here. But based upon the big play potential, that run after the catch type of output that we can expect from Will Fuller and Kenny Stills, some amount of correlation there stacking with Watson makes a lot of sense to me. Even if they draft another wide receiver, I think there are going to be plenty of games where Watson with Fuller, Watson with Stills is going to make a lot of sense. And if you want to go back to that kind of cash game mentality, stacking Watson with David Johnson, I think, is another way to kind of lock down a full or almost full share of the touchdowns from Houston. Uh, what do you think about those two options, the Steelers and the Texans? The Steelers, I like a lot. Uh, it, and Ben is is a value. If, if he plays 14 or more games, he's a surefire QB1. Uh, we, we've seen that plenty of times in the past. And there is a guy on Pittsburgh that's kind of being slept on still, and Deontay Johnson is legit. Yep. So he, he would be an easy stack if that option becomes available. Ebron is also a little bit attractive. Uh, I don't know how crazy I'd go, but I'm definitely not going to be without him. And then on the Houston side of things, man, DJ's health is going to be so huge. If he was dealing with more things than we knew last year, he could be in for just a massive workload and smash. But there were also times last year where he was truly carrying a grand piano on his back and he looked completely cooked. So we don't know what we're going to get out of him. On the wide receiver side of things, obviously we know what Fuller is. He's not going to play 16 games, probably not close to it, but he's going to have some massive wide receiver one smashes. Stills, on the other hand, I'm out on him. I'm completely out. I believe the wide receiver that they inevitably draft, Stills being just a guy to me, I've never thought much of him. I believe he's the one to be replaced, and I believe bringing in Cobb to play the slot. If the rookie they bring in doesn't, take a NFL step forward right away, we could see a situation where Randall Cobb leads that team in targets. I think I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. That sounds awful. It does, right? But it, it truly is a viable situation. 
Uh, well, you're making me feel bad about all these drafts I've done where I've stacked them with Kenny Stills. TJ, why would you do that? Let's uh, let's wrap it up there. You've I'm a terrible person. I'm sorry, Greg. <laughs> no, it's all good. This has been great. Um, do you have any other last-minute strategy tips for quarterbacks or just best ball drafts in general before we sign off? Don't be afraid to take your guys. Don't be afraid to trust your gut. Like I mentioned right at the onset of the pod, I'm very aggressive on getting the guys I like. And there's definitely a lot of laughs, a lot of LOLs in the community about draft the good players. And there definitely should be. But at the same time, I am completely unafraid to overexpose myself to the guys that I completely believe in. I'll I'll plug myself here a bit. Back in 2015, those guys happened to be Devontae Freeman and Allen Robinson. And I absolutely smashed. So those things can happen. And I've had uh, only one losing year since then, and that was a tiny, tiny loss. So being more aggressive, I think it completely raises the ceiling without lowering the floor nearly as much. And I think that's especially true right now, this time of the offseason, pre-draft, because so much is going to be shaken up by the NFL draft that you might as well target the players that you just think are clearly better than the guys they are known to be competing with on their respective teams. I think there's a lot of value in being willing to overshoot ADP for the players that you truly believe in this time of year. And you're going to be wrong some of the time. That's fine. That's part of what drafting a volume of best ball leagues is about, right? It's dealing with the misses in favor of having enough hits to carry you, right? Absolutely. Additionally, not even reaching on ADP, but don't don't be worried about the exposure created if someone at or under ADP keeps getting to you and you think it's the best thing ever. Well, let it continue to be the best thing ever. Overexpose yourself. Allow it to happen. Uh, a lot of people want to keep the range of outcomes tighter. I'm not one of those people. Go ahead and keep drafting those guys. Great stuff. That's a really nice point to end on. TJ, why don't you let the listeners know uh, where they can find you on social media and where they can find your work? My Twitter account is at TJ Calkins, T-J-C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Uh, my sports gambling stuff is all on ussportsbonus.com. Uh, daily picks year-round for a multitude of sports. Uh, my fantasy content is on rotoviz.com and Dynasty Command Center, who are now on the same family and That'll do it. Listeners, you can follow and send me feedback for the show on Twitter at Greg Sauce. And any positive ratings or reviews you want to leave for us on iTunes would be greatly appreciated. Please head over to 444.com to check out those roster construction articles from Chris Allen that I mentioned earlier, as well as some positional win rate articles from Jen Akins and Andrew Fleischer, plus a ton of player profiles from all of our other great writers. Next week's show will cover the other key positions for best ball, wide receivers and tight ends. So I hope you'll tune in again for that one. Until then, thanks again for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. We'll catch you next time. I'm traveling through the muddy water.